Well, it's great to be back in the book of John. It's an awesome book. We finished up chapter uh, 6 two weeks ago, and we're heading into chapter 7. But before uh, I begin, I want to start by encouraging you. Uh, We've had some heavy content uh, recently. The sermons have been heavy. And not only was June particularly challenging, but John 6 was challenging And when I read the beginning of chapter 7, I was like, oh man, it continues. It continues. And John MacArthur described the main focus of chapter 7 and chapter 8 as high-intensity hatred. That's what we're moving into. So this is heavy, and it won't let up for a while, so be prepared. John is, is building to the cross, which is glorious, but it's sobering. And John captures the conflict well. And I mostly preach through books, verse by verse, uh, through, the, through the books of the Bible. So uh, what comes next is what I preach. God determines the sermons. So understand that I'm trying to be faithful to the text that comes next and to capture really the tone behind that text, whatever it may be. Sometimes God comforts us. Sometimes he rebukes us, other times he inspires and encourages us. Sometimes God communicates love and mercy and compassion, and other times he communicates intensity, judgment, wrath, hell. So we take it as it comes, and we know that God always tells us the truth. He always tells us what we need to hear and when we need to hear it. And that the gospel, though it is sobering at points, is always really good and really joyful. In John, Jesus is similar to the eye of a storm. It's calm weather and clear skies at the center of a tropical cyclone. But just outside of the eye of the storm is the eye wall, the most severe part of the storm where the weather is the most dangerous. In Christ, our peace And joy and comfort, yet very, very close, pressing in, surrounding him at all sides, is fierce opposition, horrendous moral tempest. And we'll see that today. So I know that this is intense, and and my hope is that God will use this to reach you in some way, to challenge you, to make you stronger and more resilient, to deepen your faith and affections for Jesus. No pain, no gain. That works in the weight room and it works in church. Tearing is good because it builds spiritual muscle. So as we train here, we can't lose focus of the purpose that John wrote this book. John wrote this book so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in His name. Every word of John is good news, even the intense parts. It has purpose. So let's be challenged this morning. Let's be rightly challenged. But let's enjoy what we hear together because it's really, really good. Chapter 6 was around Passover in April. And as we head into chapter 7, we are around the time of the Feast of Booths in September or the Feast of Tabernacles, as you could call it, in September and October. So it's likely seven months have passed since Chapter 6, John discipled his few remaining disciples that stayed with him during those months, and he was preparing them for something. And we find out early on that many people wanted Jesus dead. 
Many people wanted Jesus dead. Verse 1 reads, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Galilee was north, Judea was in the south, and Samaria was in between. Jerusalem, the great holy city, was in Judea. Now Jesus healed the invalid and taught in Jerusalem in chapter 5. And his teaching, if you remember, ignited a really strong response among the religious leaders. People love miracles, but his teaching was threatening. Jesus rebuked and offended the most important religious people at the time. And because of his fearless truth-telling, they wanted him dead. Back in John 5.18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They hated what he did. They hated what he said. Even in John 6, his teaching kindled repudiation from the masses. Now, it's understandable why Jesus stayed out of Judea. When verse 1 says the Jews were seeking to kill him, it's referring to the Jewish religious leaders, the most powerful elitists, uh, not the entire Jewish people. The Jewish people certainly rejected Jesus. His, His own rejected him. But the leaders were the ones conspiring to kill him. Telling the truth was his death sentence. Truth is precious, but it provokes. Is truth worth being hated for? Do you stand with Jesus amidst opposition? Or do you run to the safety of the world? In September of last year, on a sunny, sunny, uh, sunny morning, probably similar to this, nearly 500 Christian worshipers headed to receive free food outside of the All Saints Church in Peshawar, Pakistan, when two Islamist suicide bombers detonated their vests, killing 78 people and injuring 130. This was the deadliest attack on a Christian minority in the history of Pakistan. This happened last year. In many places, there is a super high cost to following Jesus Christ. Do you believe that God's truth is more important than life itself? Here in Lancaster, the persecution is more mild. Maybe a glance, maybe a joke, a word, or even a letter to the editor of a local newspaper stating this, quote, the year is not 1500, the Bible is not law, people need to put their religion away when it starts to infringe on human rights, end of quote. The reality is the world doesn't like Jesus nor his followers. Even Jesus' brothers rejected him. Verse 2 says that the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths was a huge eight-day celebration, an eight-day festival, a party, if you will, that was held in the fall, September, October, and people absolutely loved it. You can check out Leviticus 23. Uh, for an explanation of this feast. The primary purpose of the Feast of Booths was to remember the historic wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan post-Exodus. And that's why during this eight-day celebration, the Jews constructed these little huts out of sticks and leaves, and they lived in them like Israel did when they were in the wilderness. God commanded them through this time to rejoice, to actually party uh, in the name of God's goodness. Deuteronomy 16.15 adds, 
the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. So you get the idea. You have this mass celebration. You're celebrating the great harvest. There are fruits and vegetables and grains and breads, I'm sure, and all this celebration of God's goodness. And they lived in tents to remember what happened in, uh, after the exodus in the wilderness. Eventually, there was a water and a light ceremony that commemorated God's provision of water from the rock and God's guidance from the pillar of fire. And that will help us to understand Jesus in the coming weeks. So mark that in your mind. So this huge joyful festival is happening in Jerusalem and verse 3 says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the world, Jesus. Now let's pause and take a slight detour for a moment regarding the, the brothers of Jesus. The Catholic Church, as well as some Anglicans and Lutherans, believe that Mary remained a perpetual virgin. Martin Luther actually believed that. Now, is that true? Verse 3 uses the term Adelphoi, or brothers. And like many words, Adelphoi can have different meanings depending on the context that it's used in. Adelphoi most commonly refers to a male sibling, a brother, but also can refer to spiritual brothers, maybe a fellow countryman, or even friends. Some say verse 3 refers to Jesus' cousins, but John didn't use the more suitable Greek word for cousins, and so we can rule that out. So as verse 3 is re- verse three referring to actual male siblings of Jesus or just friends of his. Now the answer influences other passages of Scripture, so it's important that we answer this. And what I want you to see is that the Bible is our sole authority on questions like this. The Bible eclipses tradition. The Bible eclipses history, even popular opinion, as the source of truth and doctrine. So I want to give you seven just really quick reasons to believe Mary and Joseph had other children. Number one, Mary and Joseph Joseph loved God and they loved each other as married couples should and so sex is assumed, and Genesis 1.28 would have been important to both Mary and Joseph. Number two, Matthew 1.25 says Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. New is a euphemism for sex, and the little word heos, or until, is important for two reasons. One, it validates the virgin birth. And number two, Mary and Joseph abstained from sex before Jesus was born, as to leave no question, and consummated their marriage afterwards as faithful married couples do. Number three, Luke 2.7 refers to Jesus as Mary's firstborn son, implying that Mary had other children. Number four, check out sometime Matthew 13, 54 through 56. And Mark 3, 31 through 35, it is clear by the context of both of those passages that Jesus' family is in view, and the context drives the meaning of Adelphoi. The most natural interpretation is that Jesus had actual brothers and sisters. Number five, check out Acts 1. Um, You have this grouping of about 120 people. They're gathered together. The apostles are there. And Acts 1.14 says... All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then the key point here is in verse 16, Peter addressed the entire group. Women, mother of Mary, brothers as brothers. As brothers. So the brothers of verse 14 naturally means siblings because they are distinguished from the bigger group of 120 brothers. It was a subsection. And also Adelphois follows Mary. So there's a natural connection, familial connection. Number six, in Galatians 1.19, Paul mentions James, the Lord's brother. So we could go on about this, but let's bring it back to, and root it in John 7 for the last point. Number seven, in John 6.66, if you remember, many disciples walked away from Jesus. They no longer were his disciples. They turned back. And just a few verses later, in John 7, 5, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. So John is no doubt showing that even his siblings, even to members in his family, they didn't have faith. They didn't trust in him. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And these brothers wanted him to head into Judea where the big party was. They wanted him to go in big and to show off his miracles. Now, we don't know what their motives were, but we know they wanted him to do more miracles and that they thought that if he was really going to prove himself, if he really was something special, if he really was the Messiah, that he should go big. Show off, man. And this feast could be a celebrity red carpet affair for Jesus. He'd, he'd have a captive audience. They would be waiting for him. He could win the crowd. He could win the applause. He couldn't stay in obscure Galilee where nobody's going to notice him. It's like they were playing as celebrity booking agents, trying to determine where he goes and, and what events he shows up. However, Jesus takes cues only from one, and that's his heavenly Father, his Father God. Stardom was not his objective. Redemption was. He didn't come for the lights. He came as the light. And the role he would play in the divine but unlikely plot was one of self-sacrifice and shame and blood as the means of redemption and victory, a script that was very, very different than the ones that his brothers were writing. His, his brother's rationale resembles our Hollywood culture, doesn't it? Go big, bro. Go big. Jesus, put yourself on stage and work the crowd. Then you will get noticed. Then you'll get followers. But would that really accomplish God's will? There's something behind his brother's plan. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. His own brothers lacked faith. In Mark 3, 21, his own family thought he was out of his mind. The rejection of Jesus was so widespread, so penetrating that even his closest family members lacked faith. I think these brothers wanted to see Jesus do something spectacular. I think they had wrong motives. Isn't it safe to say oftentimes God's plan is atypical? It's a little different than what we expect. It's, it's unlike our plan for ourselves. You see, God ordains and acts based on his exclusive knowledge of everything, not upon our finite knowledge of very little. God doesn't have to make sense to us all the time. We just need to submit to what he has revealed to us, and Jesus Christ always obeyed his Father. Jesus lives the sovereign will of God. Jesus lives the sovereign will of God. Listen to Jesus in verses 6 and 8. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus loved God's timing for him. It wasn't God's will for him to go up to Jerusalem with his brothers at that time and to manifest his uh, glorious power at that moment. His brothers could go. The time was right for them, but not Jesus. When he says, my time has not yet fully come, he may have the cross in mind. It's not his time to die, but I don't think that was exactly what he was thinking. I think he's referring to attending the feast. It's not my time to go up to the feast. It, it wasn't yet his time. And that interpretation helps us understand verse 10. He was implying that he would not go up with his brothers at that time. That God hadn't told him to go at that time. See, God directs Jesus, not the whims of his brothers. And I think that it'd be good for us to learn from that. God directs, not whims of ours or other people's plans for us. God's. Verse 9 says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. That probably means he remained there for a few days because he does hit the end of the feast. And now verse 7 deserves special attention. Uh, especially after learning most of his disciples left him in chapter 6. Jesus is confrontational and people hate him for it. Jesus is confrontational and people hate him for it. He tells his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. American author Flannery O'Connor said, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. People hate Jesus because they couldn't stomach his candor. Now, in our culture, Jesus has become somewhat of a rock star, honestly. Uh, he's become this pop cultural icon. Many people actually find Jesus quite fashionable, believe it or not. On the list of domestic all-time box office smashes, apparently the Passion of the Christ is number 25. It's far up there on the list, $370 million here in the United States. In the 2012 New York City Marathon, a man ran barefooted and looking kind of like Jesus would have, carrying a, a cross strapped to his back. Kanye West, which I'm sure all of you listen to, <clears throat> Kanye uh, West seems fascinated with Jesus. He included a Jesus impersonator on his tour who came out and dialogued with him before he entered into his very confusing song, Jesus Walks. A few years ago, Jesus is my homeboy apparel hit the market and celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and Madonna, Pam Anderson were seen wearing them. One businessman who sold the Jesus is my homeboy apparel said, quote, we looked at the popular icons of the 20th century and Jesus definitely topped the list, end of quote. Even Jesus' action figures and bobbleheads actually sell. I know that's freakish, but it's true. Some from, uh, someone from the E-Network called this whole Jesus style kitschy and playful. And therein lies the problem. The fashionable Jesus is not the real Jesus. Jesus is far from kitschy. Jesus is far from playful. The world despises the real Jesus because he's dogmatic, because he's intolerant. Because he's extreme. Jesus is absolutely famous, but he is broadly caricatured, ignored, marginalized, and hated. And Jesus told us why the world hates the real him. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are 
evil. Jesus looks at normal, everyday people. The people of Mannheim, the people of Lidditz, the farm boys as well as the city boys. He looks at their everyday lives and he testifies against them very openly and says they live evil. Now that doesn't go over too well with people who think they're essentially good. That tends to offend people. The Jews hated Jesus and wanted him dead because he was right about them. Jesus turned on the light in a dark room where everyone was sleeping. And as you know what happens, that tends to ignite a very strong response for everyone who's sleeping. Remember Jesus in John 3, 19 and 20. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus is very confrontational. He digs into the areas of our lives and says, that's evil. That's evil. And he's right. And that's uncomfortable for us. We start squirming around. Jesus, I don't like you telling me what's wrong with my life. I don't like you pointing out those things to me. It's very uncomfortable. But it's the starting point of actually dealing with our sin and really beginning to live. I mean breaking it open in life because he frees from the darkness. He gives us the light. The only way the Jews knew how to deal with Jesus because they obviously couldn't contend with his arguments And counter his claims was to kill him. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. Jesus never compromised the truth in order to appease or to win or placate the crowd. Jesus can be very uncomfortable for us because he looks at you and me and he's not afraid to tell us we're wrong and we need to change. Because of the pop culture, Jesus, because the church has so often watered down the wrath and justice of God, because our culture has made tolerance virtue, it's easy to forget that Jesus is not well-liked by the world. He's not fashionable. The world hates Jesus because of what he said. And we're going to see this hatred escalate to the brutality of a Roman cross. And we need to be struck by this. The life and doctrine of Jesus, the gospel, is scandalous. It slanders human nature and defames self-sufficiency. See, the world endorses people that distance themselves from Jesus, but the world attacks and targets people who love and serve him. The brothers of Jesus were unbelievers. They were part of the world. So Jesus told them, the world cannot hate you. See, unbelief unifies the world. Jesus told his disciples later in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. See, if we are accepted by the world, it may just mean that we're not standing with Jesus. Because when you stand with Jesus, hatred is coming for you. And, and, and let me just say, here in America, the heat is getting turned up. I don't know if you're, if you're watching what's happening in America. We're corroding I'm not, much, I'm not sure how much longer America is going to be a place that's friendly for Christians who stand with Jesus. And I think that's going to be purifying to the church when it's us that need to stand and when there is no other choice. Now, I want to encourage you here. As followers of Jesus, 
Our goal is not to fit in. Though we constantly feel that pull. I feel that pull all the time. Just fit in, Jonathan. Don't be a freak. Our life is defined by living for Jesus at great personal cost. I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, Paul said. The world hates Jesus and everyone who loves him. But man, when we have Jesus, we can endure the hatred because he has surpassing worth than getting accepted by the world and perishing forever. Do you know what a locker room speech is? You know that, that great pump-me-up speech that the coach gives before they take the field? They're in the locker room. The guys are getting pumped up, right? Well, here's a bit of Jesus' locker room speech to the 12 before he sends them out on mission. It's from Matthew 10. Listen to this. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for my sake. Now, how is that motivating? How is that, thank you, Jesus? I guess we'll go out and get pummeled. That's like the coach saying before the state championship game, boys, we're going to go out there and we're going to play like little boys with pop guns against the United States Marines. We're going to get slaughtered, guys, so we need to play smart and keep our uniforms clean. They're going to pound us into the ground. There's going to be significant injuries here tonight. Most of you are probably going to limp home if you haven't been carried off by the ambulance first. But play tough. They're going to march the ball up and down the field on us. And when we get the ball back, they're going to pound us into the ground and take the ball back. The refs will make bad calls. Nothing will go your way. The crowd is going to turn on you. They're going to throw bottles at you. Oh, the reporters, they're going to spurn your names in the papers. Guys, this is going to hurt. So let's get out there and let's, let's do it. You know? <laughs> How does that speech rally the team? I don't think it does. But here's the reason. Because after the fourth quarter, the scoreboard will display their victory. They will win. They already have won. They just need to win it. The next part of verse 22 is Jesus' motivation. Listen to it because it makes all of it worth it. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Go out and give your life for me. I gave it for you. I was hated for you. I was put on the cross for you. Go out and give your life for me, not to repay me, but out of love and service for me. And in the end, after getting just beat up, you win. And you'll be saved to spend eternity with me forever. I am your joy. Now serve me. And I guarantee you, they left pumped up. Salvation is ours. Jesus is ours. Jesus makes hatred worth it. 
Why would anyone pick hatred over comfort of the world? Because winning the world pairs in comparison with gaining Christ and winning in the end. We rise now to win then. We take blows now to receive blessings then. And there are rewards even now like greater joy and greater hope and greater peace in the middle of the battle. Understand what Jesus gained for you by enduring the hatred of the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my re- account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Heaven makes earth worth it. And you know what? The people who say, you know what? Jesus is not for me. I'm walking away. I'm not going to give him my everything. Miss out on the joy and gladness that are found only in Christ. They miss out. By suffering, we gain. Oh man, this is precious news. Why did Jesus endure the hatred? Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our King Jesus. Seated in power and authority and majesty and sovereignty with complete joy and gladness at the right hand of God because he lasted. He endured. He stood the test. He fought through it all and he was rewarded by God. The tough as nails Jesus, not this feathery, weird, cultural Jesus, but like the tough, real Jesus will help you confront the evil of the world and keep your joy intact. He walks with you. You're not alone. He'll help you be hated for joy's sake. And oh, do I need to hear that. Jesus waited until the perfect time to go to Jerusalem during the feast and he entered into the hostility that would really only increase from there. He went to the wolves to win. Jesus waves goodbye to Galilee and heads for the cross. Verse 10 says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now considering what we read in in verse 8, we're like, Uh, that sounds as if Jesus went back on his word. He said he wasn't going to go. Now he's saying he is going. But earlier, he was simply rejecting his brother's plan for him, his brother's time. He was saying, God's time will dictate when I go to the feast. He wouldn't go then. No public spectacle, no grand entrance, just a quiet entry to allow time for the unfolding of God's timing. God's plan of redemption was unexpected, seemingly anticlimactic, and the cross would be the glorious climax. God would reveal his sovereign power and grace through tragedy, not through celebrity. Jesus says goodbye to Galilee for the last time. He wouldn't return to his hometown, home area. At the celebration, verses 11 through 13 tell us the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The powerful Judean religious leaders were intoxicated with hatred and looking for him. They thirsted for murder. They wanted his blood. And instead of gratefully celebrating this feast of booths, instead of delighting in God's greatest provision of his son... They conspired against him and questioned, where is he? Where is he? We want to know where Jesus is. The people muttered and grumbled about Jesus. Some said he was a good man, which was a seismic, um, a seismic understatement. And others thought worse, that he was deceiving people. So Jesus was controversial at this feast. He was the buzz of the time. Jesus was the topic of very spirited conversation at this feast. And Jesus was about to teach during this feast. 
we're going to see some amazing moments coming up in the, in the future weeks. Teaching that would confound the Jews and escalate the tension. These were powerful Jews. Verse 13 uh, talks about that. People feared them. After all, they, uh, they could communicate, excommunicate rather, people from the synagogue. They could make you an instant outcast in culture. They were powerful. How righteous the Jews looked from the outside and how fierce they really were. And Jesus faced them. And he went right into the mess. And he conquered. And he confounded. Bring it in for a landing here. Has anybody ever punched the ice cream truck driver? <laughs> Nobody does that. You hear the dink, dink, dink. You're like, oh yeah, bring on the goods, y'all. Nobody punches the guy who brings the good stuff. His, his truck is loaded with pleasures. All right, you've got the bomb pop, you've got the drumstick, you've got the choco tacos, you've got chocolate eclairs. We used to call them chief crunchies. Nobody punches the ice cream truck driver. What is unfathomable is the world bit the hand that feeds forever. Jesus simply assessed the hunger pains and provided unlimited satisfaction and pleasure, and they hated him for it. He offers you those same eternal pleasures in him. Don't punch him with unbelief. By your unbelief, don't bite the hand that can feed you forever. Don't hate Jesus because he exposes your sin. Love him for it. Believe him. Trust him to satisfy you. And God promises you have pleasures forever. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love your son. We thank you for giving us so much to be thankful for. We look around and we see what Jesus has done and and we say, I'm not worthy of that. And so God, I pray that we will trust in Christ this morning, that if there are people here that do not trust in Christ, that Christ is just nominal for them, that they, they really aren't that excited about their faith, that God, you'll change their heart this morning and see that it's all in or nothing. And God, make us devoted. We're going to fall, we're going to sin, we're going to disappoint you, but that is what your grace is for. That's why Jesus was murdered for us, to free us and liberate us to live for you. God, you are awesome. And we want to go into just singing the last song here about our blessed assurance. Thank you for assuring us of our salvation in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.